Welcome to Private Market Talks, a Proscara podcast. I'm your host, Peter Antusha. Today, my guest is Jonathan Grayer. Jonathan is the chairman and CEO of Imagine Learning, a leading digital education technology company focused on developing digital curriculum and tools for pre-K and K-12 students. Jonathan previously served as the chairman and CEO of Kaplan Inc., a global education and test prep company after graduating Harvard Business School. During our conversation, Jonathan talks about how as a 26-year-old CEO and chairman, he was able to grow Kaplan from $80 million to $2.3 billion in revenue when he retired from the company in 2008. As a result of his incredible success in 2004, Business Week named him as one of the best managers of the year for his leadership work with Kaplan. Subsequently, he founded Weld North in 2010 in partnership with KKR, and later he entered into a strategic partnership with Silver Lake Partners. Since founding Weld North, he has made over 30 investments in growth stage companies, the most prominent being Imagine Learning. Jonathan draws on his extensive experience on driving growth in businesses and investing private capital in growth stage companies to discuss how he assesses talent. He shares lessons learned and what he might have done differently. He also describes how he structured a unique arrangement with KKR and Silver Lake. You'll find a full transcript of this episode at privatemarkettalks.com, as well as links to other useful information. And please don't forget to subscribe and click like after listening. And now, without further delay, my conversation with Jonathan Grayer. Jonathan, welcome to Private Market Talks. Appreciate you joining us today. I'm glad to be here, Peter. So we're going to dive right into it. You've built two companies. First as chairman and CEO, you took Kaplan, the famous test preparation company, from $80 million in revenue in 1994 to over $2 billion in revenue by 2007. And later you formed Weld North in partnership with KKR. Since founding, you've made over 30 investments in growth stage companies, most notably Imagine Learning, which I want to get to a little bit later on. But I'm really interested in, uh, given the fact that you've been on both sides from an operational standpoint, as well as an investor standpoint, your views on leadership and team building. So from that perspective, I'd like to start with your experience in building Kaplan. How do you think about driving growth of that company and what worked and what didn't? Kaplan, when I arrived at the end of 1991, was a business that had invented an industry, the test prep industry. Stanley Kaplan opened his first classes in 1938 in Brooklyn. It was well known, but it had lots of competition, most notably from the Princeton Review back in those days, which was a very market-sensitive company that spoke to teenagers and spoke to college kids in a different voice than Kaplan did. Most notably, they were, you know, vehemently against the test generally, and they make kids feel it was okay to hate them, just let's go out and beat them. And they attacked the company as being old and stodgy and run by a, a guy who uh, didn't get them. And, and so when I came, business was kind of faltering because of that. And I was kind of driven, obviously, to, to fix that. I was 26 at the time. The first thing I did was hired people who had done well in tests. You know, I went right at the hard kind of reality of success in a kind of very competitive market for college and graduate school admissions. And I had only two years earlier graduated from Harvard Business School. So I went looking for classmates who would be interested in 
what we were doing. So we were able to hire the kinds of people who worked at Goldman Sachs and American Express and places of elite individuals who wanted to run things, who wanted to be in a, in a business that was an operating business and where you could get responsibility very young. That's what we did. So the first thing we did, we went and hired great talent. And that talent, by the way, is probably the best part of the Kaplan story. There were something like 45 people who worked for Kaplan, worked for me in those years, who are CEOs of education companies today. Uh, that's amazing. Amazing. It's an amazing untold story about how much talent was there. Mm. Some of them were small and some of them are $5 billion companies. So it's a testament to that talent pool. The second thing that we relied on is, you know, we were a small part of the Washington Post company at that time. And uh, the Post uh, was owned by the Graham family and Warren Buffett was the largest shareholder. And there was a view of, well, if you keep businesses, you should invest in them for the long time the long run, or you should not be in them. And we were able to invest in our business that way. And that meant long kind of views of what made sense on curriculum. We basically started making score claims about how our product worked, efficacy, that led to a whole bunch of lawsuits. We were Lathamac stuff, which we won. Williams and Conley were, was our lawyer was my lawyer back then, but we also had, uh, to show how competitive it was, we made law, and I think it's still part of uh, legal textbooks. John Katzman, the head of the Princeton Review, bought and reserved Kaplan.com before we got to it. Mm. So we had to go get the, the, the brand and fight that out, and we did and got it, and a whole bunch of law was made around what the trade rights were for URL sites. And that was a pretty interesting experience. The point is, is that we had a long-term investment profile. We had really great young talent who was driven to succeed. And, you know, we were able to, you know, have a long time horizon and succeed and fail based on it. And over time, test prep company, which was an $80 million business, turned into a $120 million test prep company. That set the groundwork for the next phase of what happened. Got it. So you were very young when you took over that company. You were 26 years old. How did you think about building the team? You said you gathered all these smart folks, but there are a lot of them out there. What qualities did you look for and how did you discern who were the right people? Well, the first kind of hurdle was that I was looking for people who would be giving up a lot by coming to join us, right? Because they had done exceedingly well in college and graduate school and gotten into the best programs and, and companies. So they were giving up a lot to come. And, and, and the people that we brought in in those early years were leaving jobs to come join us. They weren't out of jobs. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of skin in the game. And they were, by definition, had to be comfortable with taking risk because even though they hadn't yet, and there wasn't an active venture community yet of people going from elite schools into venture-backed stuff. So these were people who were risk takers. And that was something that I, I, I focused on. So by and large, these were people leaving really good jobs. Second, having that kind of talent and being able to work in an operating environment where you opened and closed test prep centers and made sure the place was clean and you dealt with customer complaints and all the things that were not sexy about a normal business was a challenge, right? Because you could have gone and worked at any of those kinds of places out of graduate school. You didn't do that. Right. So why are you going to go do that now? And the answer really came down to education. Mm -hmm. Now, what ended up happening 
was not foreseeable at the time. But the people who joined us and people I was looking for were very passionate about learning and outcomes and efficacy and equity. And they were people who wanted to play a role in that. And the early kind of innovators were those kinds of people. Many succeeded, many did not. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so we had a lot, we had a lot of both. Got it. And so in that process, how did you provide guidance to those that might have been struggling versus, you know, in, in terms of lifting them up, mentorship, and yet balancing that against holding people accountable? Yeah. Well, that was one of the great things about our environment. Because we had control of our distribution system, which is a whole big process of taking it back from independent contractors, we were able to give accountability early on in a career. So people were really measured against their P&L and the results and their mm-hmm. revenue and their cost management. The thing I was really selling was come be a manager of a business before you could anywhere else in an environment in a company owned by a blue chip famous family and the most you know, important investor in the world. So this, the Warren Buffett piece and the Graham family, part of it gave a legitimacy that would not be part of the Stanley H. Kaplan Educational Center limited profile otherwise. Yeah. So we use that to kind of stabilize it. So I was at Kaplan 17 years. And by the time I left, we were you know, a $2.3 billion company and the resources yeah changed and um, we did all kinds of things and we can move on to the later period but at the beginning we didn't have that amount of uh, kind of uh, room and and and, and resource right. there so basically people had to be able to be innovative and improve on themselves that they were capable of being in an entrepreneurial environment and we hired very competitive people i was very competitive obviously and we hired people yeah. athletes and people who were comfortable winning and losing and being accountable and it worked. It was a tough environment in the early days because we were young. We didn't know what we were doing and we were shooting high. And we had very good competitors who were tough. I mean, principally, right. but they were, for instance, anyone could have reserved their, their, their competitor's URL, but he did it. The reason I'm curious in this early period, the early growth period of Kaplan and, and your view of how you're assessing talent, working with people, is because now at Weld North, you're on the investor side. As I said, you've made over 30 investments in growth stage companies. So I'm kind of curious how you've brought that learning as the CEO to your investing now yeah. that you've been doing in Weld North. You know, how do you I, value add talent? You know, that, that's yeah, the yeah. connection there. Well, the early and mid stage of Weld North, I was at more an investor than CEO. I'm actually back running Imagine Learning as a CEO again because oh, okay. it's, it's so big and it yeah. upside is so it's so great. We can talk about that. But yes, assessing talent in any leadership job is probably the number one driver of success for you. And everyone who picks people has a way of doing it, and it, it's it's informed by past successes and failures. Probably more by past failures than past successes. Mm. In the education business, it requires a certain type of resiliency and a certain type of kind of a blend of talents that work together that are unique to our industry. So you have to be thoughtful and intellectual in in some part of your person, but you also have to be able to be kind of very commercial. Hmm. And, you know, for the big difference between Kaplan and Imagine Learning 
And there's stuff in between. I was in the food business very unsuccessfully, and I can talk about that. But is that Kaplan is a, was a B2C business, right? Most of our business was sold directly to consumers, students and parents and families. Imagine Learning is the largest provider of K-12 curriculum to school systems. So it's not only a B2B, we're really selling to the government, right? Mm -hmm. uh, funded uh, almost ex exclusively by uh, state, federal, and local taxes. So very different business model and yep. some people uh, because of it. The We don't have, the leadership at Imagine Learning is much more seasoned, is much later in their career because they uh, we're dealing with government type stuff and big contracts. That being said, the blend that I just spoke about is the same. Got it. I talk to anyone we hire, I talk to pretty short period of time, 30 minutes. Interesting. What kind of what kind of and questions I, do you ask? I'm talking all about, about business. Yeah, I was gonna ask you, what kind of questions do you how do you how do you extract the information from them so that you can make the evaluation? That yeah, this is the right. This this person demonstrates the resiliency and the blend of talents that you described as important to assessing someone that would be. Well, successful when I, I know that they're going to be. At, I know that they're not going to expect the questions that I'm going to ask them. So we get to see how they think. Yeah. Without preparation, often I'll ask them what the last book they read was. Okay. I'll give you an example. I don't really care if I I prefer that they've read a book. I prefer that they can talk about a book. If they haven't. I want them and expect them to be honest that they're not reading a book, but what they can't do is lie. Yes. And that seems pretty foundational. Foundational. <laughs> and well, there's interesting thing, you know, I, lots of people are going to watch this through the distribution system that you have. I can ask a question right now to all of you, including myself, all of us, that will raise your heartbeat. And it has to do with the central kind of driving force behind Kaplan. And that is, Peter, what were your SAT scores? Oh, yeah. That doesn't drive now, Everyone who works with you, <laughs> yeah. everyone who knows you, has a view of what they think your SAT yeah. scores were. I'd have to think back very far. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, that's not true. You know what your SAT scores are. You know, that, that's another good example. I'm just, you, it's just that you don't, it's, a, it's that resil resistance you have to that judgment oh. that comes. Oh, interesting. It's brutal. And there are people who have achieved great things with very high SAT scores. And there are people who have had high SAT scores and not. And the reverse is the same. Stanley Kaplan, when he interviewed me, asked me my SAT scores. Of course, we would never do it. And today, uh, we, we didn't do it then. And of course, you couldn't do it today in a way that right. would esteemable. Yeah. But it gets, you know, in, in, a, in our business where so much is about outcome and equity and performance, Dealing with with that is a kind of key a key issue. How do how comfortable are people? Because it doesn't really matter what you got on your SAT score. What matters right. is how you're able to deal with it. Now we yeah. don't about that. I won't ask you yours in a real way. But so asking about a book is a proxy for that. Got it. So you mentioned you had the unsuccessful business experience. Uh, mm -hmm. You've had a lot of success, which and again I want to uh, circle back to imagine learning in a minute, but you've piqued my curiosity when you mentioned you had an unsuccessful experience. And I'm curious as to what that is and what that was, I should say, and what you what your takeaways were from it. Well, I was very fascinated by the organic uh, juice business in the 2012 to 16 period. We were tons of 
new players who are coming out with very nutritious, low-calorie, high-protein, vegetable-driven juices. And I bought a company called Organic Avenue, which was very well-known in New York and had the kind of high end of the market of no pasteurization, all fresh product. And a really good brand and a really good founder, two founders. And it was retail driven. And I knew a lot about retail, but my retail experience was education, right? Capitalism mm -hmm. all over the world. And I, I found out some very uh, cruel realities. Uh, if you don't pasteurize food, if you don't sell it today, guess what? You can't sell it tomorrow. Right. You can sell a SAT book today, tomorrow, until the paper degrades. I mean, you can sell a course the same way. And second, so that's point one. And second, predicting and the availability of all the components of that juice and having inventory management of things that go bad was extremely difficult. And I didn't have those experiences or skill sets. And I ended up selling the business. And we've had enormous success. Our, our, our returns have been very, very uh, pleasing to the people who invested, but that was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and it was terrible for good reason. You know, the business model was flawed, but more importantly, I was the wrong person to, to not to own it. You can own things if you have people in between you and the, right. to, to oversee it. I did not have the experience base. And it turns out that uh, that matters a lot, especially yeah. just like that. So that uh, you know, as I've joked many times, my only food investment would be, uh, you know, in my own restaurant bill. I'm not, I'm not doing it again. When you're looking at investments today, what do you take away from that experience that you bring to your new investments? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really good question because it kind of feeds into the same. I owned a bunch of education businesses through uh, World North. We sold uh, one of them to Wiley, the public company, mm -hmm. uh, higher ed business. And we sold a, a technology back office functional, functioning business to uh, a, a company owned by Vista, the private equity firm. And we got out of those businesses to focus solely on our K-12 digital curriculum play. And that's now called Imagine Learning. Imagine Learning was one of the businesses I bought, but we took that name and renamed all of our K-12 businesses, Imagine Learning. And that company is now the largest provider of digital curriculum to K-12 schools in the United States. All of my investing today is driven by building that company. Got it. I don't do any other investing. Got it. I do. I give tons. I give money to other people to invest in things for me. Got it. But I am right now focused only on turning this business um, into an institution that lasts well beyond, you know, my, my, my involvement. And it's, it's a big business and we yeah. think it can be much bigger. And so all of my investing is around building the product sets and technology for enabling better curriculum de development and delivery of Imagine Learning. Got it. So it started so as all kinds of education and, and some wellness investing and a bunch of, we probably had 12 operating businesses. We've been, been changed to one company called Imagine Learning. It sounds to me like you had the Kaplan experience, education focused. You became an investor. You looked at various categories. You, you found one, the, the, the business that wasn't successful and you kind of took away from that. I should focus on what I know, areas that I'm good at, industries that I know well, 
which is the education industry. And then you you were able to find Imagine Learning and sort of the companies that fall under that category. Is that sort of a fair way of looking? Yeah, at I mean, Imagine, Imagine Learning was the second biggest business. A company called Edgenuity was much bigger. We just like the yeah, name you folded up, you folded under. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's um, turn. Yeah, that's okay. great. And you know, we the, the education business we sold, we sold well and made money, but building them um, was not nearly as interesting to me on a personal level as building uh, the curriculum company that we're doing now. And that's what I wanted to focus on. And we made transitions in our ownership structure along the same path, right? So I started with my capital and KKR was yeah. my. I, I want to get to that. I want to get to that in a minute. So that mirrored that mirrored this transition. Let's turn to Imagine Learning. Can you describe a little bit to our listeners what is Imagine Learning and its mission? The mission of Imagine Learning is to bring the power of digital learning and curriculum to the K-12 classroom in large in urban school systems and in rural school systems. And so our, our major uh, clients are public schools. We have obviously business in small private schools, but you know, we're, 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 we're an industrial provider of education. Mm-hmm. And uh, with all of the changes that digital technology has brought to the world, it had not, when we started this, done much to the classroom. And that the way parents were involved, the way assessment and data was used to, to focus kids on, on, on weaknesses, not strengths, to bring, you know, to enmesh all kinds of rich media with, with, with didactic material had not yet happened. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that digital curriculum was being used, it was used in what's called intervention. So for kids who were behind, who didn't, who tested so poorly that they needed to have kind of a separate experience outside the classroom. And so we started there with our company Edgenuity providing what's called credit recovery. There are three elements, three kind of big verticals of education markets in the K-12 schools. Intervention on the one hand, which is helping uh, kids who are way behind. Initial credit or what's called core curriculum, which is the first way a child learns math or algebra or English language arts, any that's called core. And that's that's been dominated, of course, by textbooks teacher textbook classroom model mm-hmm. and in between it's called supplemental and supplemental is for both sides of uh, the learning outcomes of kids who are behind do more of this and kids who are ahead go faster with with this and we're in all three of those businesses and we are the largest provider now of digital first core curriculum which is changing the way kids learn the first time about a subject matter and you know we're we're disintermediating, if you will, the teacher textbook classroom model, and that allows educators and planners to think about the school day differently, and to think about their budgets differently, and to think about the relationship of teacher-student ratios uh, differently. And um, we're excited to be, you know, a very important player in that in that in that landscape. I'm curious as to what impact COVID had on the e-learning experience. Well, COVID uh, improved uh, all the markets and it will uh, for two reasons. One, obviously classrooms were shut and there was a whole stay at home component to learning. And then the CARES Act money um, came flooding into the school systems to help them with the, 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 the difficulties that, that the, the pandemic 
created and that led to spending at higher levels. There was a permanent, a one-time uplift to all the markets. Now that's kind of shaking out as that money goes away and budgets have to be managed without it. Um, and uh, prices for assets in our space went up along with that. That's all now settling out. So it's an interesting time. There'll be consolidation, which is a big part of why I'm running uh, the business again, to help think about what the right consolidation moves are for us. Um, but it, it was overall, and it was a catalyst for real important change around the way the initial credit market worked. That textbooks had held on for too long because there was not really an impetus to, to change them. The most permanent change I think of the pandemic will be it catalyzing the end of textbooks the way we think of them, these big, you know, books that we... Yeah, I was going to say, I would think that the industry, the education industry would be slow to adopt change because of the nature of the various constituents that yes. have an input. How are you navigating the competing views on education, well, uh, education well, content and, you know, in the e-learning area? You will never win a bet taking the over on speed of change. And, <laughs> right. and I've lost a lot of it, <laughs> unfortunately. Some of it comes back to time horizon and how patient your capital is because you build for things to change and they change slower than, than you want. Back to that blend of talent, the people at the top of an education company have to be comfortable with being commercial. They have to appear in front of school boards. They have to deal with union bosses who have views that might be for or against what we're providing. And uh, the complexity of the, all, all that coming together is a central you know, driver of public education in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and we're dealing with it in ways now that we never have before around the conservative agenda, state boards of ed controlling curriculum choices by local municipalities in their state and the impact that that has on our ability to sell what we want to sell. And so it's, it's kind of never been this intense as it is now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, frankly, we could we could have a whole separate conversation on that aspect of this. But since we're really focused on private capital and capital allocators and, you know, some of the learnings that you've had in your experience, I want to I want to pivot to what you mentioned earlier when you said you you sort of founded this with KKR, this process, and then you I think you then KKR sold out and was in Silver Point, uh, which is one of the- Silver Lake. You know, Silver Lake, yeah. Silver, uh, Silver Lake, I'm, I'm sorry, two of the world's largest PE funds and more recently, Onex, I think it is, the Canadian asset manager is now one of your partners. I'm kind of curious as you didn't have the traditional relationship with them. So could you describe kind of how you thought about that, how you thought about bringing in KKR as a partner, compare that to the traditional PE relationships that well, what, 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 what you looked for, you know? Yeah, well, my relationship with KKR really was driven off of a personal relationship I had with Henry Kravis, the founder, who I had known through participation in conferences. He had a great desire to be in education. They had had some unsuccessful attempts at bidding on big things and then backing some people. And he very much wanted to do a startup kind of concept with me. And he and I cut a deal that KKR would never have 
done otherwise. And there have been done some, some like this done since, and there were, you know, a few at the time. But where I had a bunch of supermajority rights around debt levels and the way things were done, of course, capital allocation was driven by who owned what. But it gave a time frame and a kind of operating model that I thought was necessary to succeed. And it worked out very well. I put a lot of capital in myself. And so I was a large owner and I had the kind of carry economics that you're so familiar with, which were then mine to distribute to my team. So my position to the asset as a founder and a founder that funded, you know, a bunch of the initial capital made our setup unique. And I thought, you know, for me at that time, after taking a year off, after the 17 years of like nonstop travel and very hard living, I wanted a certain kind of structure that would work for me and it wouldn't have been for everyone. And when I transitioned to the normal KKR leadership team, they were like, what is this? And <laughs> that, 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 that was, that's the G version of what they said. Um, <laughs> I actually transferred, uh, it actually got taken over by a man named Alex Nabob, who was the head of private equity at KKR. And he was not easy on, we did not have an easy relationship to start, as you could imagine, because he was used to being in charge. Right. You know, they give the money and they give the comp plan and they're in charge. Right. And uh, we worked through those things. Uh, Alex tragically died uh, probably five years ago. Yeah. But, you know, back to the private equity model, we were part of a fund, the 06 fund that had lots of problems. Mm-hmm. They decided KKR in 2017, they wanted to clean up their ownership and they were selling everything in that fund. And that's when we did the deal of selling KKR's ownership to Silver Lake. Okay. And 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 your, and your relationship with Silver Lake and Onyx, Onyx, are they, is it basically the same way where you're, in, you maintained control and... Well, you know, yeah, it's a great, yeah. I mean, so Silver Lake's co-CEO, Greg Mondre, is the investing partner. And... You know, Silver Lake is a very aggressive technology investor and yep. for the right platform. And we have, you know, again, to be clear, we provide one of the basis of our relationship is that we provide complete access to our business. They know everything about it. They mm-hmm. Every document they want, um, they get, and uh, their teams are intimately involved with ours. So there's a much more fluid. We don't live around board meetings. We have week, they have weekly calls with my team and are updated mm-hmm. on everything that's going on. So it's much more fluid because it doesn't need to be this tightness that goes along with the control. So they have complete access. It's worked very well for us. Yeah, got it. And, and Onyx, you know, came on then and that's been a great addition for us. So we have a capital structure that I think is one of our best assets. So is there anything you would have done differently? I went to bought Organic Avenue. <laughs> you know, one of the things that's a fascinating topic for us right now is, is the company culture in a work from home environment. Mm. 62% of our staff worked from home in February, 2020, before the pandemic. But as we've grown, we're much bigger now. Um, it's become clear that we're too zoomy. Mm. And one of the changes that we're making, which I would have made earlier, is that our our the, the, our our headquarters are in Scottsdale, Arizona, mm-hmm. because that's where E2020 is based, the original company that became Ingenuity. Starting like last month, 
we're all going to spend a week, a month in Arizona. We're moving to uh, Tempe, to ASU, beautiful, obviously, but we're going to, the top people are going to convene a week, a month. And because that's how we can best create the kind of, you know, proximity and emotional connection to our business. And so I wish I had done that earlier. We read about and talk to CEOs who are doing much more dramatic things. We can't really do that because, you know, the reason what drove our dispersion was the need for talent. You can't find the kind of talent we need in in most cities. So I wish I did that differently. And I would also, you know, I think focusing when we did has turned out to be good for us. I think Whenever something is good, you always wish you did a little earlier. So, you know, we sold things well. We could have sold them equally well a year earlier, and I wish I had done that. Got it. Interesting. So you, you've been incredibly successful. You you clearly are, remain passionate and motivated, uh, and you're, you're invested in this uh, endeavor. Um, you don't have to. You could go sit on your beach uh, and drink pina coladas. What, what keeps you motivated? I was blessed to be able to start in a position of responsibility very early. And because of a lot of fortunate coterminous things of ownership being distributed in ways that weren't possible a generation before, I ended up at a young age being in the position that you said. And I've gotten good advice from mentors around how to think about work and you so that you can feel good about how to answer that question. And... For me, I'm very passionate about learning for myself. I have been rejuvenated in my commitment to our digital curriculum company because for the first time, initial credit, the way she learns math the first time is going to be digital. Mm. We're going to play a huge role in that. And that, I believe, will change learning outcomes more than anything we've done before, meaning our American students will do better than they've been doing. Resources can be allocated better. Now, it won't be as quick as I want or you want or the world wants because of the topic we discussed, but that gets me excited. And the people who share that commitment are fun to hang out with for me. Now, you know, one of the things that I'm very lucky for is that, you know, I don't, when I was a captain, I was very front and center. And we are part of this company everyone had heard of, the Washington Post Company. Mm-hmm. Today, I don't go to the confabs. I don't do much of that. My people do. I don't have to raise money, so I'm not on CNBC. And I get to focus on this. And, you know, when when we have to figure out what to do with it next and we get too big, so the only option will be to go public, and that's kind of where we're going. It won't be me as the CEO because I don't want to do that, but it will be a new challenge, a last challenge for for creating stability in the, in the place. And I'm excited about that down the road. That's cool. I know you, uh, you founded the Grayer Foundation. I'm kind of curious what your passion is there. What is the purpose of Grayer Foundation? And well, the Grayer Foundation is run by my daughter, Sophie, uh, who is extremely passionate about philanthropy and how our foundation can make a difference. We have a big segment of it involved in, in cancer innovation. Uh, I'm the chair of Patient Care Memorial Sloan Kettering, and we've had a lot of personal loss. I lost my mom four years ago there. Mm-hmm. I was named after my dad's mom. He's a doctor who died a month before I was born. Mm. So I spend most of my nonprofit work is being intimately involved in the in, in MSK. And we do a lot of different things there, um, from science research to 
patient care and the way uh, urgent care is dealt with as, as, as one of the big issues cancer centers are dealing with is as cancer becomes a more chronic disease, there are lots of attenuated medical issues that patients deal with. And then we are involved, then Sophie leads an effort that really focuses on, on, on two things, uh, nutrition and access to nutrition and access to higher education. So mm -hmm. we, I founded the Kaplan uh, Education Foundation, which is kind of an amazing road scholarship of community college, uh, elite community college kids to go to the best schools in the country. That's been a big thing we've supported. And now Imagine Learning has a foundation that's doing other things in, in helping, really helping paraprofessionals serve school uh, interests. So we're really involved in education, in nutrition, and cancer. That's and, and, um, noble. You know, all, all the all the the the, uh, the smaller contributions you would expect that we do. Yeah, no, that's very noble, noble causes. I, you know, I myself. One of the things you mentioned the cancer area. We've all all been touched in various ways. I'm, I've been active in. There's a, a ride up here called the PMC, uh, yeah. which is one of the largest. It's the single largest, I think. It uh, is weekend fundraiser in the it's country. An it's amazing. I know it's an amazing. I've been yeah. do, done it for years, and it's so inspiring. But one of the most inspiring parts is when you're riding down the road, you see all the pictures of these children that have died from cancer. It's it's very heartbreaking, and so at the same time, it's inspiring on the mission. So thank you for 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 doing that. So I just have a a couple of questions to wrap up. I appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. The the first is is you know, having been as successful as you are, um, I'm kind of curious, what is your most unusual, successful business habit? My most un unusual? Yes. Everyone says they work hard and they're driven. And I'm kind of curious if you have an unusual, successful business habit that could... Well, I'm uh, kind of, I think, I think that... Uh... The first thing that pops into my mind is. By the way, you can ask that of your in your interviews. <laughs> good, it's a good question. I, I, I would say that uh, it is my desire to understand the smallest markets we serve, and the resistance that we have to uh, success there. So I know a lot more about things in our business that don't really matter, because they help me understand things that do. Yeah, I think that's. That's true in many ways. And the last question I have for you, you mentioned in the interviews that you like to ask, what is the last book you've read? So let me turn that I to just, you. I what, is your, what is your last book? Well, it's so big read? that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to describe it as the last book I read, although I'm not done with it. And that is, the, is, is John Lewis Gattis' book on George Kennan, which is fascinating. I mean, first of all, the guy lived to be 102 years old. Second of all, almost everything he said, turned out to be right. He was a crazy guy. But the thing that was amazing, when he was like in his late 90s, early 90s, he was saying there was no WMDs and going into Iraq was completely wrong. This is a guy who, who uh, determined how you know, we dealt with post-war Europe. I mean, he, he was at the top of his game in 1947. Mm. It was right about what we did wrong there. Great. Bit. The problem is, it's three books. It's like, you know, yeah. I have a hard copy, I have a soft copy, I have a Kindle copy. <laughs> uh, I, I, I read all my books on Kindle, by the way. But the problem is, is because 
it's not sitting on my desk. It's hard to remember the title sometimes, even though, you know, I'm in the middle of the book. I have the glare problem. I don't, I, I don't really, I much prefer a book. Yeah. So, so this is the problem with this one, though, is that in the, the Kindle solves it. Is this a pain to carry around? Yes, yes, yes. So well, listen, we'll show it to you. I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us on the various topics that we spoke about. So thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And obviously, I hope your audience uh, got something uh, good out of it. It's been a pleasure being with you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.